0: The teams you care about.
1: I've got Pats, I've got Sox, Bruins, Celtics, UVM. Where do we want to start?
0: The stories that matter to you.
1: A huge shocker out of Foxborough, Mac Jones, the quarterback of your New England Patriots.
0: This is your home for New England sports.
1: I admit it, I'm a card-carrying member of both the High and Bloom and Cam Newton fan clubs.
0: This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEV Radio.com.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV Radio.com. It is a Tuesday, and we have a full show going up until 7 o'clock, a full 90 minutes. Red Sox are out west again getting ready for game two of their series with the Seattle Mariners. We will have the voice of the Patriots, Bob Soce, on with us at about 545 I think Bob today, and I'm looking at the staff as I do this behind the glass, I think Bob today is going to be calling us in live from a golf course. He's somewhere on the back nine, I think. I think Bob's in a celebrity charity event today, so I think he's going to be calling us directly from the course. So Bob making time for us, as he does every Tuesday at about 545. As always, you can get in on the Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line. That's 802-585-3026. Your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. And I want to hear from you. Okay, it is now football season. This is our sweet spot when it comes to fan engagement, when it comes to listener engagement. We are in football season. We are in the start of your local UVM seasons. When we think about hockey and basketball, we are, you know, deep, you know, into high school football now. High school sports is going on, and we got a playoff race going on. I want to hear from all of you. 802-585-3026. Remember, this is your show as much as it is mine. Okay, it's your show as much as it is ours. So come hang out with us and get in on the Napa Morrisville Napa Waterbury text line and Lego. us
2: Five four. Three, two, one. And here we
1: go. The opening thoughts in the Brady Farkas show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Red Sox lose to the Mariners last night 5-4, and as it stands right now, by virtue of percentage points, The Red Sox are now out of the American League playoffs. The Blue Jays are in the top spot in the AL wildcard. They are one up on the Yankees and one up on the Red Sox. But again, by percentage points, the Yankees are ahead of Boston and the Red Sox are currently out of the playoffs. The Mariners are two back right now and the A's are two and a half back. So tonight's matchup in Seattle is certainly a huge one as well. So uh, Seattle trying to get in. To the mix again, trying to stay closer to the mix, and the Sox trying to find a way back into the playoff race, or back into the playoff position right now. Last night was a very disappointing loss for the Red Sox. Defense was once again porous. The Kyle Schwarber error opened up the door for the Mariners' big seventh inning, where they ultimately won the game. The bullpen faltered again last night. It was Ryan Brazier who allowed the big three-run homer to Mitch Haniger in the seventh that at the time made it 5-2 Seattle. Brazier with the 1-1 delivery. Fly ball left field. Is it deep enough? Back to the wall as Verdugo over his head and a home run. Mitch Hanniger's fourth hit of the night is a three-run home run.
3: And Seattle breaks it open. They now lead five to two.
1: Again, an error opening the gates. Four of the five runs unearned. Four of the five runs yesterday were unearned by Seattle. So the defense by Schwarber opened up the floodgates. The relief pitching by Brazier, you know, allowed the floodgates to really bust loose. And then, while he pitched well overall, Eduardo Rodriguez once again struggled early. He put the team down two nothing right away. And that's a problem because it's never fun or opportune to be playing from behind. So we talked yesterday about the Patriots losing in a familiar way. The Red Sox lost last night in a familiar way. This was a familiar script. Defense stinks. Bullpen falters. Erod struggles early. We have seen this movie many, many times over the course of the second half of the season. And the game was also frustrating because I don't want to pat myself on the back for this, but the game played out last night almost exactly like I told you it would. There's a lot of things in life that I don't know. There's a lot of things in sports that I don't know. But if I know one thing, it's my Seattle Mariners. If I know one thing in sports, it's my Seattle Mariners. And last night played out nearly exactly like I told you it would. I said that Logan Gilbert would look dominant at times. He did. The rookie was electric at times. Nine strikeouts, he was putting fastballs, 97, 98, and he was blowing it by guys. I told you that would happen. But I also told you that he would run a high pitch count, and he was doing just that, and the Red Sox couldn't capitalize, and that's frustrating. I told you that he would struggle to locate his secondary stuff, and as a result, He would fall behind in the count, and that's exactly what happened. A lot of 2-0 counts last night, a lot of 3-1 counts last night from Gilbert, and he pumped fastballs to get back into counts, and you couldn't punish him for that. I would have thought that veteran Red Sox hitters would make the youngster pay. Like Jose Iglesias should not be all of your offense through seven innings. The veteran stars on this team, your Xander Bogarts, J.D. Martinez, Rafael Devers, Kyle Schwarber, those guys, Hunter Renfro, should have made Gilbert pay, and they couldn't. They should have made him pay for getting behind an account. They should have made him pay for his inability to land his secondary stuff. Logan Gilbert last night threw 99 pitches. 66 of them were fastballs. There are some guys I watch around baseball, and they, like, never throw a fastball. Lance McCullers for Houston throws 96 miles an hour. He refuses to throw fastballs. It's all changeups. It's all sliders. It's all curveballs. Usually in Major League Baseball, you don't get fastballs. Guys pitch backwards like crazy. And Logan Gilbert yesterday threw you two-thirds fastballs. He threw you 66% fastballs, and you couldn't do a thing with it. And outside of a few good sliders to Alex Verdugo, like he didn't throw many good off speed pitches. A couple of high change ups early to Schwarber, the really good sliders to Verdugo in about the fifth inning, but other than that, his off speed stuff was garbage. It was all fastballs. And they were piped right down the middle and you couldn't do anything with it. I this was a textbook scenario, I thought for the Red Sox going into last night's game. It's why I picked the Red Sox last night. Young kid, looks good early, then develops a high pitch count, gets behind in the count, only has a fastball, and boom, the Red Sox tee off about inning four. And it just didn't go that way. And if I were a Red Sox fan, I'd be very, very frustrated by that because I have seen seen Logan Gilbert struggle like that with good veteran-hitting teams, and the Red Sox couldn't do it. The Astros made him pay. The A's made him pay. The Red Sox couldn't, and that's disappointing to me. I also said last night that Ty France and Mitch Haniger were really the only right-handed hitters to make you really worry in that Mariners lineup, and France hit a couple of balls hard, and Haniger goes four for four and ends up being the one to kill you. So it played out pretty much exactly like I thought. All the things I said would happen last night did. Hanegar in France, boom, good. Crawford, good player. Ends up with three hits last night. Said I thought Erod would pitch well. He did outside of the first two innings. I thought Gilbert would get behind in the count. He did. Thought he would throw a lot of fastballs. He did. And then the one thing I didn't mention yesterday is that the Mariners' bullpen has been among the strikes of their team unheralded guys, Drew Steckenrider, who gets the save, Paul Seawald, who no one had ever heard of, pitches the eighth inning. Now, we gave up the two runs yesterday, but he's been electric this season for the most part. If you're going to beat the Mariners, you're going to have to put them away early in games. So tonight, when Tyler Anderson takes the rubber for Seattle, you want to get to a point, as the Red Sox, where you've got three or four in the bank on him. Because if it gets to the pen and the Mariners are up 4-2, 4-1, the odds that they're you know, all going to stink, probably not likely. The bullpen is the best part of their team. So the Red Sox tonight need to score and score early against Anderson because that bullpen will be ready to go again today. Except for maybe Seawald who threw a bunch of pitches in the eighth inning. So it's a disappointing loss last night. I don't think that the Mariners are better than you, even in this COVID state. And it's a team that you should come out and beat tonight. The, the Red Sox absolutely need to win this game. The Yankees are playing the Orioles. I presume they're going to win. If the Red Sox want to remain tied for the second wildcard spot, they need to beat Seattle. If they lose to Seattle, the Mariners will only be one game back of them and will have a chance tomorrow to go for the sweep. This is a huge game, and Nathan Ivaldi, I think, is the guy to right the ship for Boston. This Mariners team strikes out a ton. Ivaldi throws so hard and is pitching so well; he absolutely can churn through this lineup rather easily. And the key for him is that he doesn't walk people. The Mariners kind of feast on your mistakes. They're not going to get 13 hits in this game. They're not going to generate eight runs on their own. If you walk the ballpark and allow them to hit a three-run double, that's where they—that's where they get you. Like last night. Four out of five runs unearned. They're not going to manufacture a lot of things on their own. This could be a game where Ivaldi strikes out nine and walks nobody in the Red Sox cruise. And that should be what happens today. I think Anderson's a good pitcher for Seattle, but I think the Red Sox can they can get 3-4 on him. I think Ivaldi dominates this lineup, and the Red Sox should win this game 4-2, 5-2. Two, two. But they better score early because that bullpen for Seattle is very, very good. It's a Brady Farkas show. WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Got a couple of texts coming in off topic here, which we will address here maybe at the top of the 6 o'clock hour. So on another note in the AL wildcard picture, what the Blue Jays are doing is amazing. They've won 9 out of 10, and they are just pummeling people. When George Springer got hurt again, For the third time this year, at the end of August, I thought they were done. I thought that they would be done and all the wind had been taken out of their sail. But they, for the last two and a half weeks, have just been killing people. And they have made up a staggering amount of ground in the last two and a half weeks. Our friend Sarah Langs from MLB.com, on August 27th, the Blue Jays' playoff odds were 4.5%. Now, 70%. 4.5% to 70% in the span of two and a half weeks. That's incredible. And Vlad Guerrero Jr. is just mashing baseballs. He's got 45 home runs. He very well may win the Triple Crown. He's got nine homers in his last 15 games. He's amazing. Everybody around baseball, even his own teammates, are impressed. Here's A.L. Cy Young, probably frontrunner, Robbie Ray on Vlad Jr., yeah, it's pretty amazing to watch honestly. The ball makes a a different sound when it comes off his bat. I mean, you you when guys get it, guys get it, but when he gets it, it
2: I mean, it's borderline out of the stadium and it's just it's really really fun
1: to watch. If the Red Sox have to play Toronto in a wild card one game playoff situation, the Blue Jays scare me to death. Okay. They scare me to death. All that power, all that energy, all that youth, all that fun. They could, they could go on a special run from the wild card to the World Series. With the way they're playing right now, they could make that kind of run. If they can just get to the playoffs, they may go ahead and win the whole thing. But not only do they scare me this year from a Red Sox standpoint, they scare me moving forward, like for years to come. They're so young. They've really got nothing from Kevin Biggio, another one of their prized youngsters. If they can get him going and into the fold, like they could become the next Houston Astros. As far as I'm concerned, the Blue Jays could become the next Houston Astros. That young team that has all kinds of power, the lineup is long, they're frustrating at bats to play against, and they make you pay for every mistake. That team to me right now is the Astros it very well could be the Blue Jays as early as next year. Because what they've done the last two and a half weeks, I think that's going to carry, and that's going to translate. And remember, next year, they're going to be at home for the entirety of the season. Like, this was the year for the Blue Jays to be down. They had three home ballparks, Dunedin, Buffalo, and then Toronto. They were living out of a suitcase for the first two-thirds of the season. This was the odd year. So... Well, I think the Red Sox have overachieved, and I'm generally okay with however their season goes. Like this was the year where you had the advantage over them. Next year you don't. It's no longer just the Yankees or just the Rays. The Red Sox are gonna be in a dogfight, in a in a four-team dogfight next year, too, and the year after. The Blue Jays are that good. They are that good. And two and a half weeks ago. Like those playoff odds suggested, I thought they were left for dead. Now, they not only might make the playoffs, they may win a wild card game and they may be able to take a run deep into October. We'll see what happens. But uh, the Blue Jays, Vlad Guerrero Jr., if not for Otani, Vlad Jr. is the MVP. He may win the Triple Crown. He may hit 50 homers. Robbie Ray may win the Cy Young. Marcus Semyon's going to hit 35 home runs. I mean, this team right now. The bullpen is a weakness, but beyond that, this team is stacked. This team is absolutely stacked, and the Red Sox have to contend with them maybe in a one-game playoff this year, but for years to come because what they've got is going to be around for a while. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, when we come back, we're joined live from the golf course, I believe, the voice of the New England Patriots, Bob Sosi is going to be with us. Are we minimizing Sunday's loss to the Dolphins? And if we are, why are we doing that? Bob Sosi live somewhere on the back nine, next on DEV.
0: He's called the best of the Patriots' past.
2: They have completed the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history.
0: But now... It's time for these Patriots to bring a bright future to Foxborough. To Myers on the crossing route,
2: turns along the sideline, inside the pylon. Touchdown, Patriots! Dua takes the snap, he's looking over the middle, moves up, moves up, he's hit. The ball floats toward the corner of the end zone, picked off by J.C. Jackson. Oh. Here comes the rookie, Matt Joe. Welcome to Foxborough.
0: It's the voice of the Patriots, Bob Sosi on the Brady Farkas Show, on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVRadio.com. Radio.com.
1: Welcome back in Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM and FM and wdevradio.com. Yes, the voice of the Patriots Bob Sosi is with us now and Bob, I believe is on the golf course right now a celebrity charity golf tournament. So Bob joining us somewhere, I don't know, probably at this point about the 15th green. So Bob, because I know you're playing, I appreciate you making some time for us today as you do every single Tuesday. I will keep you uh, I will keep it briefer today. I know I am doing this, but are you getting the sense that most people are minimizing this Patriots loss on Sunday to the Dolphins?
2: Yeah, Brady, I think some people are so encouraged and optimistic about the future because of the performance of Matt Jones, and I think there's a lot of reason to feel good about what we saw from the young quarterback and certainly aspects of the Patriots with the room to grow offensively. But I do think that it's a disappointing loss on a lot of fronts. I thought the defense, for example, in which they invested so much, you know, kind of let them down in a couple of key spots. You look at the Dolphins' ability to run it enough. I didn't think Miami would be able to run on the defense this year after the Dolphins ran all over the Patriots last season. And they gained 250 yards a year ago. It was a porous run defense certainly one of the worst in in Bill Belichick's tenure with New England. They invested heavily in the front seven, and I thought, okay, there's no way that the Patriots are going to allow that to happen. Well, Miles Gaskin had two 15-yard runs for the Dolphins on their second touchdown drive. The final 30 yards were on running plays, and then when the game was hanging in the balance after the Patriots, even after the fumble by Damian Harris, the Patriots still had an opportunity. All three timeouts plus the two-minute warning. And the Dolphins gained five yards and four yards on consecutive runs by Malcolm Brown. And that's one aspect. Another aspect would be, for example, the situational football that let them know they're outplayed when it came to the turnover margin. They're outplayed when it came to the discipline of penalties, not committing them by the Dolphins, uh, who, of course, with Brian Flores, preach the same things that the Patriots do. Uh, so in a lot of ways, they lost that game more than the Dolphins wanted. That's taking nothing away from Miami's effort, well-coached performance. You know, certainly Waddle is a difference maker, plus Devontae Parker. But I also thought the two other things were exposed in that game, questions that we had coming out of training camp, tackle depth, who's the third tackle for the Pats, and also cornerback depth how the Patriots would be affected in the secondary without Stephon Gilmore in particular.
1: You know, the biggest issue for me, Bob, where the game was really lost was the fact that the Pats were one for four in the red zone at converting touchdowns. That was very disappointing. As you talk with Zoe during the game, uh, how can they address what went wrong in the red zone?
2: Well, I think that's another area too. Absolutely. You know, I I was looking at, I think the red zone has, has been a topic of a lot of discussion this week. And
1: you look at the two
2: tight ends. Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith have been two of the best red zone targets in the NFL the last couple of years. And I think when the Patriots signed them, you thought there would be a significant impact on their production in the red zone. And what we saw, I think, at times, uh, you know, early in the game was a bit of a conservative approach, understandably so, with a rookie quarterback in his first start, especially, you know, in the way that it ended. I think what we'll see more of down the road, though, is giving Matt Jones an opportunity, even inside the 20, to throw it. I think they had a lot of confidence and faith in the in the running game uh, behind that offensive line. I think it's part of it, too. I think in the final series, I think the, the, the clock came into play. Maybe that's why they handed it off to Damian Harris in that situation because Mac had passed them into that spot. He'd run uh, the offense, spreading it out, out of the gun, directing things very well by that point in time. Certainly was in a rhythm. I thought Harris was a bit gassed. That goes back as well, I think, that fact to the – Maybe the lack of Ramondre Stevenson's presence because of his early fumble, early mishap out there. Uh, Harris certainly looked like he was gassed, took the handoff, and he can't lose it either way, but nonetheless, I think, a factor. But you're absolutely right. You know, the the red zone last year was a problem in the Miami game. Another illustration, they were forced to kick four field goals last year and lost to the Dolphins 22-12. Well, they got on the board with a touchdown in this game, but they still relied on Nick Folk three times to kick field goals. And then, of course, they fumbled inside the ten.
1: Bob, I will get you out of here on this and get you back to your big golf outing. So I'll yeah, start. I'll, first I'll, I'll first
2: of all, Brady, I gotta, I'm, I'm like the worst golfer on this golf course and the worst golfer on this planet, probably. It's a charity event. I was asked to play kind of last minute. And, and, and so that's, I just want to explain that to the audience.
1: Hey, a good a, 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 a day on the course is better than a lot of days anywhere else. So good or bad, it's still good to enjoy some nice weather at least. Um, yeah, it's gorgeous. Mac Jones was good, obviously. We know this he took a lot of what the defense gave him, which was a lot of underneath stuff. How do you balance taking what the defense gives, but also taking some shots and developing some explosiveness?
2: Well, I think that comes in time. But I think, you know, number one, I think you're criticized because you take what the defense gives. Yeah, you know, To me, that's generally what good offenses do. You, you know, you, 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 maybe you look for some shot plays next, next time around and in the future on first down. Uh, but to me, you know, to fault Mac Jones, as I've seen some people do for for checkdowns and take what the defense gives, well, that's what this offense has thrived on for years. How many times, really, in my tenure uh, can you recall over the last eight, nine seasons, the Patriots airing it out deep downfield? Uh, they won a lot of games without a lot of long balls. Now, I think that you, you, you have to have receivers, number one, who can create separation and beat defenses deep. I think in the Dolphins case you had two corners who were really as good a cornerback tandem as there there is in the league and Xavier Howard and Byron Jones and I you know Nelson Aguilar had a good game uh Nelson Aguilar is the Patriots one speedy threat but anybody else out there I mean when they did throw deep they threw to Jacoby Myers down the middle of the field and Jason McCourty was able to keep up with them stride for stride and knock the ball down. This is a team that doesn't have a lot of speed to stretch the field. So I think probably in the future you'll see some more deep shots, some chunk play type shots, uh, off play action on first down and, and try to go that. Mac has shown us he could do that in the preseason. He could throw that deep ball. But I think on Sunday, I think part of it was the personnel of the Dolphins, but also what, what Miami's defense was willing to give the Patriots. They played zone in Miami in this game. A lot more. Brian Flores is a man-to-man coach. They predominantly play man coverage in this game. They played a lot of zone, and I think that dictated where Matt Jones was going with the ball, and also the fact that he, the right tackle spot. Going back to my point about tackle depth was an issue, and he was under a lot of pressure. He got hit nine times. Hard to stand back, there where you got to release the ball right away
1: and throw the ball deep downfield. Bob Sose, voice of the Patriots. Check him out all season long right here on WDEV. Pats and Jets coming up on Sunday at 1. Bob, my advice to you is uh, read the green well and be short on the putt rather than long. And we will talk to you again next week.
2: Well, Brady, I have the pleasure of playing in a group with Steve Grogan, who threw the deep ball extremely well. And he also hits a golf ball extremely well. And uh, whether I see the green or not, <laughs> I'm definitely short on the putts more times than not. But, of course, I'm short with everything else as well.
1: <laughs> Bob, we will see you again. Thanks for making some time today. Thank you, Brady. Appreciate it. No, I appreciate you. Uh, hey, what would you do today? Hey, hey Bob, what would you do on Tuesday? I just golf with Steve Grogan. Oh, no big deal. Oh, you're yeah, hanging out with Grogues. Oh, all right, cool. He's a pretty good golfer. Sounds like a pretty good day for Bob Sosie right there, so it's uh Let's see, 5.58 here, so Bob's got about a good hour of daylight left, but uh, hopefully he's on about hole number 14 by now. Otherwise, he might not finish, so appreciate Bob taking some time here. We will get more into our Bob Soce takeaways coming up at about 6.15, so even though it was a shorter interview, still got some things there that registered with me uh, that Bob had to say about Sunday's loss and some of the stuff on Mac Jones and the perception around Mac Jones. Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line is open. Travis... Our buddy up in Essex says, I know this isn't on topic, but I need to get something off my chest. I can't stand the new number configurations in the NFL. Brady, am I being the grumpy old man that says get off my lawn or am I not the only one? Uh, Yes, you are being a get off my lawn guy, but you're not the only one. Tom Brady hates the... The new numbers where the linebackers can wear number six or number 12 or number eight, whatever. You could wear different numbers outside of your usual positional group. I think it's cool. Okay. It's what these guys did in college. I'm used to seeing running backs wear number two and wide receivers wear number one and quarterbacks, you know, being in in the low digits. I'm used to all this. So, no, I think this is cool. I don't have a problem with it. I think there's an element of what Brady says that's right that, like, hey, I spent my whole life knowing that linebackers coming into the game and guys come on the field are wearing in the 50s. And now, if they're number seven, it takes harder or it's harder for me to kind of compute that in my brain. There is a part of that that I understand and agree with, but come on, it's cool. It'll sell more jerseys for the league. Teams will like it. And uh, there's definitely a swag factor to it. So, yes, you are being the grumpy old man, Travis. So, all right, we will step aside get a national news update from CBS News. But earlier today, I had an opportunity to talk with UVM men's hockey coach Todd Woodcroft. I got a couple of things that I need to relay to you that really, really stood out to me. All for the positive. That's next in the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV.
0: Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVRadio.com.
1: Brady Farkas Show. Right here on a Tuesday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Full show today going up until 7 o'clock. Remember, Red Sox on the West Coast in Seattle. Full pregame coverage begins at 9-10. First pitch is at 10-10. It's Nathan Divaldi for the Sox. Tyler Anderson going for the Mariners. Anderson, a guy that not a lot of people know a lot about. He was acquired from the Pittsburgh Pirates right near the trade deadline. If you miss any of the interviews that we do on the show, like the one we just did with Bob Sosi, you can always subscribe to our full show podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And you'll also get access to some exclusive interviews on the podcast channel. Like earlier today, I had an opportunity to talk with Todd Woodcroft, UVM men's hockey coach. And the reason why I spoke with him is because yesterday, the UVM hockey schedule came out. And I was very excited to just kind of, look, we're, we're three weeks away here from exhibition season, two and a half really. I think the first exhibition game is like October 2nd. So we are getting closer to returning fans to the gut and getting Todd Woodcroft kind of in, you know, the first full, hopefully normal year of his tenure, getting to see it in action. So it's a very exciting time if you are a UVM men's hockey fan. So I had an opportunity to talk with Coach Woodcroft. The full interview, again, is on the podcast channel. I kind of bring you some of the bigger pieces right now, though, because a lot of things really stood out to me. I asked Todd Woodcroft about the resources he has at his disposal, and I asked about the commitment from the administration to helping turn this program around. Here was Coach Woodcroft's answer.
3: I can tell you that anything I've asked for, I've never gotten a no. Now, I'm not asking for helicopter rides from (laughs) You know, for us to go to a practice rank or crazy things like we're we're very responsible in our needs, but I think that the people that you surround the team with are so important. You know, you have the people that you have, the process, and the process is how we work and how we work together. At the end of the day, that's the product, which is the players. So I think that we were able to bring in so many of these uh, voices to come in and whether it's supporting what I say or I support what they're saying, we all have the same
1: goal. Let me play back for you the very, very beginning of that clip one more time.
3: I can tell you that anything I've asked for, I've never gotten a no.
1: I think that is a huge deal. Prior to Todd Woodcroft being hired, I remember pretty actively questioning the budget of the athletic department. Would they spend enough money on a coach to be competitive inside Hockey East? And at least I, along with several others, feared that they wouldn't. We knew UVM's in Hockey East, they they say they want to play with the big boys, but do they really want to play with the big boys? Do they want to pay as much as Boston College, as Boston University? Would they be willing to overpay in order to turn this program around and get a great head coach? Those questions are being answered now. Okay, They bring in Todd Woodcroft, a guy with a great resume, and I know it can be found online. I don't know what exactly Woodcroft makes himself, but I know the staff that he has assembled around him couldn't possibly have come cheap, and the administration has allowed him to bring in the people that he's brought in. There's a strength coach that doesn't work with just hockey, but works with the athletic department, but Woodcroft found him. A former Edmonton Oilers strength coach is now working at UVM. Somebody comes from the NHL ranks to Catamount Country. That can't be cheap to do so. Mike Babcock, last year, former NHL head coach. Look, he was a volunteer assistant, but when he came to Burlington, I got to imagine that, you know, Something is be, He's being taken care of in some way. Patrick Sharp, former UVM player, three-time Stanley Cup champion, volunteer assistant this year. Got to imagine he's going to be taken care of in some way, even though it's not a salary. Other assistant coaches that UVM has hired are other people from the pro ranks, guys that uh, have significant experience, guys that are former head coaches. These guys could not have come cheap, and the administration – has given Todd Woodcroft the okay. You know, I have given Todd Woodcroft a lot of credit for uncovering every stone to turn this program around. Well, the administration deserves some kudos deserves some kudos also because they have given him the freedom to uncover those stones. That's a big deal. When Woodcroft says, Well I haven't been told no on anything that I've asked for, my questions about the administration's commitment to spending and commitment to winning, they're being answered. That is a major deal. The investment in the program appears to be there, and the administration appears to be buying in, and that's important. This program's not going from 1-10 in in the league last year, or 1-11, or 2-22 a couple years ago. They're not going from that to a top-four seed in the conference tournament because they're not willing to invest. If UVM turns this around, and I think they're on the track to do so, Okay, if they're going to turn this around, they're going to have to properly invest monetarily and in the right people. And right now, UVM is doing that. And Todd Woodcroft is spearheading the charge to get quality people and quality assets around his program. And I think the athletic department deserves some props for recognizing what it takes and the kind of people that it takes to turn it around. Another story that we need to get to here. And this this came out a couple of weeks ago. Todd Woodcroft is going to coach in the Olympics. NHL players are allowed back in the Olympics this year. Remember, in the 2016 games in Pyeongchang, NHL players weren't weren't playing. Well, the PA and the league came to an agreement. And there are going to be NHL players in these Olympics in Beijing. I said the 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang. The 2022 Olympics in Beijing, there will be NHL players there. Todd Woodcroft is going to be behind a bench on a staff at the Olympic Games. He's going to coach for Sweden. Now, Todd Woodcroft is Canadian. Has coached for Team Canada on the international circuit, but has also coached for Sweden at various international levels. And he's going to coach for Sweden in the Olympic Games alongside NHL players. It's going to cause him, though, to have to miss about 10, 11 days of the UVM season, right? The Olympics are in February. He's going to miss 10, 11 days of the season right within the hockey East schedule. This is great news for the program that Woodcroft is going to the Olympics with Team Sweden. Initially, when I first heard this, I was a little bit skeptical, wondering is it really a great idea for him to leave the team in the middle of a season? But once I thought about it, okay, once I thought about it briefly, once I digested it, I came to the conclusion that it is not only a it's not only okay, it's actually a great thing for him and for the program and that all was reaffirmed to me today when I spoke to him in person this will only benefit UVM men's hockey in the long run Todd Woodcroft coaching at the Olympic Games will only benefit UVM hockey in the long run and that's all that we really care about here was Woodcroft talking about why he said yes
3: but I might be able to go over there and get smarter I might be able to go there and get new experiences, see something on a power play or see something offensively or defensively or make a connection that's going to help Catamount hockey down the road, which is the real reason.
1: Maybe Todd Woodcroft makes a connection with a Swedish player who's got a brother or a cousin or a family friend, and that guy turns into a Catamount recruit. You you think it sounds far-fetched. It's not. Maybe in the Olympic Village, Todd Woodcroft meets a, another you know another nation's player who's got a brother, or a cousin, or a family friend, and that player becomes a future catamount. Maybe Todd Woodcroft's Sweden team wins a medal, and players in Sweden are inspired, and they want to play more hockey. They already play a lot. They want to play more hockey, they want to come to the U.S., and Todd Woodcroft is an instant connection for them it very well can happen it's a very plausible thing and it's a big deal if Todd Woodcroft's name stands out to Swedish players that are inspired by the Olympic run then maybe they become catamounts or maybe just even simpler to his point he goes and learns from coaches or players who have experience or knowledge that he wants the one thing I've learned from Todd Woodcroft over the year and change I've been speaking to him, is he's not going to stop working. And whether that is in recruiting or in preparation or in learning about the game, he's never going to stop. He wants to learn, and he wants to bring tidbits of information back to himself and back to the program. So if he can pick the brain of a uh, you know a, a, a Victor Hedman, if he could pick the brain of other coaches on the Swedish staff and bring something back to UVM, that is a win. That All of that is going to be more valuable than the 11 days that he misses. And one other thing. This is the Brady Farkas show, by the way, on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. One other thing that stood out to me is what else he said about the Olympic experience. He said that me being gone for 11 days opens up the door for my other coaches to get behind the bench and to assume a different role.
3: I want to hire people here who want to be head coaches. I want to hire people on this staff who have ambition to coach elsewhere. So if I have Steve Wheeler and Scott Mosier and Patrick Sharp can now come and be on the bench when I'm gone, uh, if I can give those guys an opportunity to feel it, I think there's a benefit to that too.
1: That one really stood out to me. That one actually stood out to me maybe above all others because let's understand this. It's human nature. People have egos and people have individual goals. People want to see themselves do well. And once they are doing well, they want to keep doing well. It sounds basic and obvious, but it's true. Play this out with me. If Todd Woodcroft has a staff, and that staff helps Todd Woodcroft do a good job at UVM, Todd Woodcroft, it would be understandable if he wanted that staff to stay together. Well, Todd Woodcroft is telling you, that doesn't matter to me. That's a pretty selfless attitude when he says, look, I understand you guys are helping me, but it's not just about my career. It's not just about My job at UVM. I want to invest in you and in your career, and I want to get you to grow and reach your goals. That is a selfless attitude. Think about it in the confines of this radio show. This radio show, in my opinion, you may have a different one, but in my opinion, this radio show works. And it works because we have a team here. And part-time Jack was a part of that in the summer, and intern Colin was a part of that in the summer. So we added to our team but this show works and we have a team and a system that works for us. It would be logical if I didn't want the producers to leave. I like them. They help me. They make this show better. They make my job easier and they help this show grow. If they leave, well, then the show could suffer. Or I got to spend time teaching new people things. And, That probably would be selfish on my part, but it would be understandable to you. right? You may not like that I would say that, but it would be understandable to you. Hey, Brady had this good thing going. He doesn't want to see it torn apart. Coaches don't like to lose assistants because it makes their job tougher. They have to reteach things, and they don't want to do that. They want to focus on winning, and they want to focus on winning all the time. They like comfort. And they like when they have success, keeping that group that got them the success in place. Todd Woodcroft is selflessly telling you that doesn't matter. Yes, a a constant revolving door of coaches might make my job more difficult. It might cause me to have to do some different things or spend more time on the phone or spend more time hiring or doing interviews, etc. But I don't care because it's not just about me and it's not just about My job and my record and my resume, it's about you and yours as well. And I think that's incredibly selfless. And I was incredibly impressed when he said that. I think back to a couple years ago with the Patriots. It was amazing to me when, do you remember this? Josh McDaniels, a couple years ago, left the Patriots for the Colts for like a day and he was about to be introduced as the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts, and then he ultimately backed out. And when he came back to Foxborough, there was a story that came out on ESPN that said something to the effect of now that McDaniels is back, he's going to get more into Belichick's mind. Belichick's going to teach him more about um, salary cap handling, and The the behind-the-scenes stuff. My first thought was, why is McDaniel's? Why does he not already know that? Why has he already not had access to that knowledge? And part of the thing that I came to the conclusion of: Belichick doesn't want his whole staff gutted, so maybe he's not intentionally sabotaging McDaniel's, but he also may not be going out of his way to prep him for a job where. McDaniels then goes and beats Belichick. Again, sounds selfish. Could understand it. And Todd Woodcroft is telling you, does not matter to me. I want my guys to grow. I want my guys to move on. It's not just about me and what I have to do here. I, so every time I talk to Woodcroft, I get more and more impressed. And the full interview is available on the Brady Farkas Show podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEV Radio. Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury. Text line to open 802-585-3026. Marcus in South Royalton says, or in Royalton rather, says, can't wait to get up to the gut. It's been a long time coming. Woodcroft was very excited to see the fans. He reiterated to me multiple times for his players and for him, he cannot wait to have his first Friday and Saturday night at UVM with the fans there because he didn't get any last year. And... Even though he coached UVM last season, it's not the full experience when you don't have the fans at the gut. So UVM is going to have, I believe, they're not going to play an away game until November 12th. They got an exhibition game at home in early October, Colgate at home, Quinnipiac at home, RPI at home, Boston College at home. They're not going to see the road until November 12th. So a lot of chances to see UVM up close and personal right off the bat. So don't wait, because the back half of the schedule is loaded with road games. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, I went overboard on the timing there with the Woodcroft sound. So we'll get to our Bob Sosie takeaways later in the show. I do want to get, though, to who's saying what. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Here's what we know about New England. Their running game production, their offensive line, their special teams, and their defense will all be top five and they have the best coach in the game, they're going to win a bunch of games. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race, and I'm losing my mind over it.
0: It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Parker Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com.
1: All right, this Who's Saying What comes from Mike Giardi of the NFL Network. Covers the Patriots specifically and has covered the Pats for a long time. He was talking about Mac Jones and his mindset following the season opening loss to the Dolphins. Mac Jones said yesterday on WEEI that he's a perfectionist. He took the loss especially hard. Here's Giardi on Mac's attitude.
3: I think they're going to have to talk to him and tell him, we love your attitude. We know you don't want to lose but you don't have to take it so difficult and so hard there because we want to pump you up because I think there's so much for Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick, Bucky, to be very happy with from their rookie quarterback.
1: I think there's a fine line to walk here. Mac Jones is a perfectionist who cares a lot, who bore the brunt of responsibility for the loss even when he didn't need to, and he was extremely hard on himself. There is a fine line to walk there. It's good to know that Mac Jones cares, but you also don't want to get to the point where you beat yourself up, where you're never satisfied, and you let perfect be the enemy of very good to great. You don't want to be that guy who's never satisfied. I think it is good for Mac Jones to be a perfectionist in practice. You want to run things flawlessly in practice, and you want to be prepared for every angle. I don't mind if he walks out of a practice disappointed things weren't 100%. I don't mind if he wants to hold guys accountable, if he wants to run things again. But you do have to understand there's something called what my old high school basketball coach used to call game slippage. You're never going to be 100% all the time in a game. And if you keep searching for perfect in everything you do, you're going to be searching for a long time because it's just not realistic. At some point, there's something called paralysis by analysis, where you can just work too much. You can study too much, and you just have to play. So again, it's a fine line. I want Mac Jones to care. I want his teammates to know he's invested and to know that it matters to him. But Mac Jones will hopefully learn this. He cannot put himself in a position to be paralyzed by it. Working harder is not always the important thing. Working smarter is often the important thing. And at some point, you have to just walk away from it. And Mac Jones, I hope, will get there because if he's never satisfied, if he's always searching for something more, you're going to get torn down by this job and you're going to get worn down. By this job. I also think this is an interesting angle to the whole thing. There have been a lot of people making the Tom Brady, Mac Jones comparisons. Not as much on this show, but a lot of people nationally have been talking about Mac Jones as it relates to Brady. I think this perfectionist nature, there is an element of being in the shadow of Brady there. Because Mac Jones undoubtedly hears the stories. He knows that Brady is a perfectionist. He knows Brady is demanding. He knows Brady is never satisfied. So Jones sees that in Foxborough, that's the recipe. That's the standard. I think Mac Jones is probably pretty close to that level of uh, detail-oriented on his own. But when you know that in that very room, Tom Brady did it and he did it that way... I think that does weigh on you. And I don't think that Mac Jones feels the pressure of living up to Tom Brady's standards on the field. I think he is pretty good at separating himself from Brady in that regard. But when it comes to preparation, work ethic, the meeting room, I think he sees Brady did it this way. This is how Brady was. That worked here, and people expect that here, so I need to do that here. And I think that would weigh on you. And I hope at some point here that it doesn't weigh Mac Jones down. Because, again, to Giardi's point, there is a line. And what did he say, guys? I
3: think they're going to have to talk to him and tell him, we love
1: your attitude. We know you don't want to lose, but you don't
3: have to take it so difficult and so hard.
1: You don't have to take it so difficult and so hard. Do the work. Do the preparation. Be maniacal about that preparation in practice. And then trust your preparation and trust that it worked. And then just play the game. And then go back and do the same thing the next week. Don't have to hold yourself to the Brady standard of work ethic and the Brady standard of uh, the way that Brady was. You don't have to be a carbon copy of him. I think that's what Mac is somewhat trying to do here. All right, it's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. This COVID situation with the Red Sox is serious, and it's very unfortunate. But in a twisted way, it might actually be working to Heim Bloom's advantage. I'll explain why. That's next on DEV.
0: Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com.
1: Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Again, going up until 7 o'clock. John Wilson's dinner. Jazz takes over at that time. Red Sox baseball against the Mariners. 9-10 with the pregame show. 10-10 with the first pitch. It, it's sick and twisted to say this. And I and I admit that it is. But I think that this COVID situation buys High and Bloom some leash and some patience from Red Sox fans. High and Bloom has been a punching bag since the trade deadline for not doing enough at the deadline to supplement this roster. I think that him being a punching bag, I think that that needs to go away now. Because if the Red Sox season ends in failure, if they don't make the playoffs or if they lose in the first round or in the wild card game, whatever, I think the thing we're going to point to is the COVID outbreak. And I think we're not going to be pointing at Bloom anymore. Do you feel differently? 802-585-3026. If the Red Sox don't achieve something great in the playoffs, if they miss the playoffs, if they lose in the wild card round, are you going to blame Bloom or are you going to blame COVID? For me, I'm going to blame COVID. It's just too many players, too many key players at the inopportune time. COVID is not the only reason that the Red Sox have declined in the second half. And in reality, I'm aware of this, the decline started long before the outbreak. But when you lose your best pitcher and your closer and multiple top relievers, your starting second baseman, your starting center fielder, and multiple bench pieces, in my mind, you have a built-in excuse. You have a built-in excuse, and I think that that will insulate Haim Bloom from further criticism. And the timing will insulate Bloom also. Because if this happened in April or in June, I don't think we'd use this as an excuse. The Mariners, who are in the playoff race, had a COVID outbreak in May. Missed like all their bullpen. Got past it. The Yankees, COVID outbreak a little earlier in the Red Sox. We're not giving them that. But the Red Sox, given when this has happened... I think that High and Bloom is going to get the benefit of the COVID outbreak becoming kind of a natural scapegoat for the Red Sox. Because I'll, I'll tell you this, when November rolls around or when it's January and the snow's on the ground and I look back and I think about this Red Sox season and I think about the problems that they had, I'm going to point to not having Chris Sale available for key starts in September. I'm going to point to the game where Alex Verdugo was forced to play out of position in center field because of COVID. I'm going to point to Kyle Schwarber, you know, uh, you know, or JD Martinez having to play the outfield too often, and COVID is the reason for these things. COVID is the reason for these things. Acquiring Anthony Rizzo would not have stopped this outbreak from happening. Anthony Rizzo got COVID himself. Making a move at the deadline would not have stopped this onslaught that we got. So I think the back half of the Red Sox season will be defined more by COVID than by anything Haim Bloom did or didn't do at the deadline. And the fact that we could just write off a month of the season, essentially, as a result of the virus, does bode well for Haim Bloom. I would, I hate, and I like High and Bloom, so I, I'm good with him no matter what happens, but for the people who don't like him, I hate that Heim Bloom is getting a reprieve this way, but I think he is getting a reprieve this way. 802-585-3026. Uh, Steve says, as far as I know, Bloom does not have an at bat and has not made an error. Why is this collapse his fault? Good question. Uh, I do believe though that the front office, oftentimes, deserves credit for what's happened. Or deserves blame for what has happened. And in, Heim's Bloom, in Heim Bloom's case, he got a lot of grief for not getting Anthony Rizzo, for not getting another bullpen arm, for not getting a better starter, for not getting someone other than Austin Davis in the bullpen. Fans wanted him to get Max Scherzer. Fans wanted him to get Jose Barrios. Fans wanted him to go out and acquire uh, Rizzo. I was okay with not making those moves. I've defended Bloom forever for this season. But I think for the you know the 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 vocal mob who was coming after Bloom, I think they've got to be silenced. Put the pitchforks down on this. This is not his fault. And I do believe that this COVID outbreak insulates Bloom from some criticism that he would have gotten otherwise because if this team faltered down the stretch, and Anthony Rizzo would have made a difference, people would be crushing Bloom like they were right around the deadline. But right now, you, you can't crush Bloom for this. Nobody has enough depth to overcome what they've done. No one has – you can't make a singular move that can cover for Matt Barnes, Josh Taylor, Hirokazu Sawamura. You can't you, – Josh, you, you can't do that. And then, you know, you throw in the fact that Darwins and Hernandez got hurt. And now Sale and Pavetta. You, you can't make moves to cover for this. So, Kike, Arroyo, uh, who am I missing? Um, Bogarts, uh, you you can't cover for that. So, High and Bloom, I do believe, is insulated. And we give front offices and teams, we give them passes all the time based on certain circumstances. The 49ers last year finished last In the NFC West. One year after going to the Super Bowl. Why? Injuries. We know that. It's not because Kyle Shanahan can't coach. It's not because John Lynch is a bad executive. It was because of injuries. Because they lost Nick Bosa. And they lost Jimmy Garoppolo. And they lost all of their running backs. That's why they came in last in the NFC West. We gave them that built-in excuse because they were missing too many key players for too long. George Kittle. I think the Red Sox are going to get that excuse also. The timing of COVID and the number of players impacted and the amount of time they've missed I think will keep the the, the, the mob mentality away from high and bloom. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEV Radio Com. All right. I want to get to our Bob Sosi takeaways. We have the voice of the Patriots, Bob Sosi on as we do every single Tuesday at about 545. So Bob was with us today from a celebrity charity golf tournament. So we appreciated him joining us uh, somewhere from about the 13th green on. So I asked Bob this question. I'm going to ask you 802-585-3026. I got Steve on the text line. I know Steve's a diehard Patriots fan. If you're like Steve, I want you to answer this question. Are you minimizing the Patriots' loss on Sunday to the Dolphins? Are you minimizing it? I know that I am, and I know others are. Tom Curran, NBC Sports Boston, he was on the uh, Patriots Talk podcast, and he said he was too. When we look at the grand scheme, Phil,
2: kicking rocks over a loss when the Patriots are notorious for fixing issues. Even though it's a divisional loss, even though it's at home, even though it's to a former coach, it's just not worth wringing your hands over.
1: Because to me, the headline, 72-point war-declared size, is Mac Jones, the real deal. So, I'm minimizing the loss. Tom Curran is minimizing the loss. I asked Bob if he gets the impression that others are as well.
2: Yeah, Brady, I think some people are so encouraged and optimistic about the future – because of the performance of Matt Jones. And I think there's a lot of reason to feel good about what we saw from the young quarterback and certainly aspects of the Patriots with the room to grow offensively. But I do think that it's a disappointing loss on a lot of fronts. I th-
1: so Bob's not minimizing the loss. He says, yeah, there's, it's good to be encouraged, but they should have won that game. I told you all along, when Mac Jones got inserted as a starting quarterback, my patience level grew much higher. And it's as simple as that for me. If Cam Newton was here, I'd be thinking playoff run. I'm still hopeful of a playoff run, but it's not end-all, be-all to me. I told you once, i told you a thousand times, early in the season especially, I want to see traits from Mac Jones. Cam Newton, I know his traits. I wanted Cam to come out and win. I wanted Cam to be 3-0 through three weeks. And that was, you know, 3-0, 2-1 was all I was going to accept. With Cam here... In my mind, it was a different trajectory for this team. There was a different sense of urgency. With Mac Jones, I don't have that same sense of urgency. I want to see Mac Jones develop. I want to play the long game with Mac Jones. I said, Cam, I want Cam to be the starter. Why? Because I want them to play with urgency. And it's a win-now league. And Cam is better to win now. When you took that away... From the Patriots, when you took Cam Newton away, you told me you're playing the long game. So if you're playing the long game, then I'm going to play the long game too. They should have won that game. They had no business blowing that game. But when we play the long game, I'm thinking about from from Sunday to five years from Sunday. My goal is to win the Super Bowl at some point in the five years Mac Jones is on his rookie deal. With Cam Newton here, it was get to the playoffs and win a game and then see what happens. Different quarterbacks lead me to different expectations. But if you are going to tell me, Bill Belichick told us last week, right, Mac Jones is our future. That's why we're going with him. Well, when you use the word future, then I, I push my foot off the pedal. Okay, I push my foot off the pedal. Cam Newton here, one year deal, sense of urgency, prove it now, win it now. That's how I would have been. Same as I was last year when Cam was on a one year deal. But you talk you start using the word future, throwing that around? Well, then I'm think I'm I'm looking at it through a long lens. This is just the the first lap of the marathon. And the one game doesn't matter as much to me. 802-585-3026. Norton, in Norton, ironically enough, says, Brady, I'm not minimizing it. I I gave up my entire Sunday to watch that game and spent a bunch of money on beer and food and pizza, etc., and had the wife watch the kids. I don't look at it like the future. I want to see them win. If I'm going to invest my time, I want them to perform. I get it. But as a fan... Understand that your commitment is great, and it's great to support the team, but the team is now on a different timeline. Continue to give up your Sundays. Continue to see it as fun. See it as entertainment for right now and not life and death. Trust me, I've watched a lot of bad baseball games over the last several years knowing the Mariners had no chance to make anything of their season. I still watched. I still gave up many, many late nights and many nights out to watch a 40 and 72 team. That's just what we do as fans. Your organization has a plan. You might not like it, but their plan is develop Mac Jones for the future. The other thing that Bob said at the end there, he said it was a disappointing loss on multiple fronts. And he pointed out to us in the interview Defensively, he thought they would stop the run better. But also, one thing he didn't say, which was disappointing, was the offensive line play. Our guy Phil Perry, NBC Sports Boston, was on TV last night, and he talked about the Pats' offensive line.
3: Dolphins were credited with nine quarterback hits yesterday. It felt like more than that. He was on the ground way too often. For a, a young guy who's not that big, as we've stated in the past, you just you got to figure that out. So that to me is the slander. It's a good performance from the quarterback. You have to do more to help him. It's not just the execution, the fumbles and the penalties and all that stuff. Obviously, that stuff needs to get cleaned up. You need to
1: clean up the pocket. The line has to be better. Now, Trent Brown got hurt early the other day. Justin Heron got benched then. So there was some rotations happening inside the offensive line, but the line has to be better. Okay, The line has to be better. Mac Jones, as a rookie quarterback, cannot get hit nine times, cannot take multiple sacks, cannot get hit on third down in the future. We talk about game managing. We talk about putting pieces around Mac Jones that help. Run game, good defense, good special teams, and good offensive line play. Part of the reason Mac Jones maybe threw so many checkdowns the other day is one, the defense was giving it, but two... Hard to let things materialize down the field when you got guys in your face constantly and you're facing a lot of pressure. Offensive line's got to be better. Keep Mac Jones healthy, keep Mac Jones upright. There is really no backup here. Brian Hoyer is on the roster. He's not my guy. He's not my cup of tea. As far as I'm concerned, if you go to the backup quarterback, your season is completely shot. Mac Jones needs to be kept upright so he can stay healthy. So you want to see the ball thrown down the field Mac Jones needs to be able to have time to let things develop down the field. The offensive line we believe to be a strength of this roster, and I believe that it will be. It needs to be better than it was on Sunday. Steve says this on the Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line. I'm not minimizing it. We're not supposed to lose to Miami. Too many penalties, too many fumbles. It wasn't Mac Jones' fault. The standards have been unfairly set ridiculously high over 20 years. You know, I I think that's absolutely part of it. And I think I can get off... um, I think I can get off minimizing it because I'm new to the Patriots culture, right? Like, five years. That's how long I've been here. When I was growing up, and I was a Seahawks fan, right? And the Seahawks were bad. Now, the Seahawks, for the last half of my life, have been very good. They've been relevant. I now have high standards for them as well. But for the first 15 years... Of my life, I would have just taken them making the playoffs. Like going nine and seven was a good season to me. Not getting killed was good to me. So I had low expectations. For the Mariners, same thing. If they make the second wildcard game and then go get beat nine one in the playoffs, I'll, I'll be pretty darn good with that. They haven't been to the playoffs in 20 years. So I come from a place of generally lower expectations. I come from a place with rebuilds. And with acquiring draft picks. And I come from a mindset of, hey, play the long game, see it through. Most of you people don't. Most people uh, don't. Steve says we should have won that game. How many penalties inside the red zone? I'd be interested to know. Well, there were eight penalties for 84 yards in total. I don't know how many of them specifically came to the red zone. But uh, Patriots are good. But with Mac Jones here, I play much more of the long game. I want to see see growth. And I expect Mac Jones and the team to be better next week than they were last week. I think next week against the Jets, they should win. The Jets are clearly inferior to them. That's a game the Patriots should win. And there should be better things happening and cleaned up things happening from last week to this week. This is a good time to note, by the way, tomorrow we have no show. There's no afternoon news service, and there's no Brady Farkas show tomorrow. Red Sox baseball, afternoon baseball against the Mariners, closes out the series. The coverage begins at 310. The first pitch is at 410. So we do not have a show tomorrow. But Thursday, we're going to have former NFL tight end Anthony Becht on the show. He played for the Jets for a number of years. He's part of the Jets radio broadcast right now. So Anthony Becht will be with us on Thursday as we kind of go behind enemy lines and start our prep for the Jets. So again, nothing tomorrow. All right. Unnamed texter is a future NFL plan to build a team. Hmm. Let's see. This set. I'm not quite getting this text here is a future NFL plan, a team that builds through the draft rather than get a free agent. I think, but too tough for me to answer right now. Maybe send it in again. I just got to, maybe I'll take the commercial break and try to fully decipher it. Um, But I appreciate you texting in. Again, Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury, text line 802-585-3026. When we come back, every single year, I make a football PSA. That PSA is coming to you next. My once-a-year football PSA. That's next on DEV.
0: Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEV Radio.com. Welcome back in.
1: Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Dinner Jazz with John Wilson comes up in just a couple of minutes. This is my once-a-football-year PSA. Okay, Every NFL season, I do this PSA. It is your yearly reminder that one play does not lose your team a game. I heard somebody say this the other day, somebody that I really like who covers the patriots and they said Damian Harris's fumble lost them the game. No it didn't. No it didn't. One play never loses a team a game. One call never loses a team a game. I understand the desire to grade things and to put you know to put a loss on one singular moment, but a loss is always a compilation of things that have happened. The two turnovers hurt. The lack of red zone production hurt. The eight penalties hurt. The fact the Dolphins came out and scored to open up both halves really hurt. The injury to Trent Brown really hurt. None of that individually lost the game. Maybe some have more weight than others. I told you yesterday, I think that the red zone issues were the biggest overarching problem. But all of those things added up to the Patriots' first loss. As Bob Soce told us, even after Harris fumbled, the Pats had a chance to get the ball back. They couldn't do it. It was an all-around clunker in a couple of different areas for this team and it all added up to the loss it was all just the, it was all the recipe in the soup that equals 0 and 1 one singular play one singular moment one singular call does it never cost your team a game even uh, a couple years ago remember there was that awful pass interference call against the saints that sent the rams to the super bowl the the, the saints were up like 14 to nothing in that game like 14 to nothing early and blew it They had the ball in overtime and didn't win it. They had the ball first in overtime and couldn't score. It's never one thing. Every every fan always wants to point to the ref or to the fumble or to this or that or the other. I implore you, when you're sitting around watching games and your buddy says that play cost them the game, remind them that no, it didn't. There were probably 120 other plays that had something to do with how the game ended up. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Reminder, off tomorrow, Red Sox baseball in the day, 3-10 first pitch, or 3-10 free game, rather, 4-10 first pitch. Tanner Houck scheduled to be on the mound against the Mariners' lefty, Marco Gonzalez. Tonight, it's Nathan avaldi against Tyler Anderson. Sox should win this one. I expect avaldi to come out and be really good. He's been really good here for a while, and uh, Sox need this win. They are two games ahead of the Mariners. They are tied with the Yankees right now for that second wild card spot. Yankees have it on percentage points. So it's a must-win at this point for the Bo Sox. That'll do it for me. And uh, Dinner Jazz with John Wilson is coming up next. Remember, it goes from 7 until 9, and the Sox pregame show begins at 9.10. Full show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. I'll see you back here on Thursday on WDEV.